Welcome, ass. There's a Shakespeare quote, and this is a podcast. And I'm just stating the obvious. Let's begin. Welcome, everybody, to the Posthumous Podcast. My name is Bailey Van Scape, and I'm going to be hosting this little, uh, this little shindig here. Um, is that as fuck in my room? And instead of, you know, grabbing a glass of water to, you know, cool me down, I decided to take a red wine that is uh, meant to be served warm um, and um, mix it with ice and maple syrup to uh, make it a little bit sweeter. And uh, what that actually does to the wine is make it uh, taste real weird. Uh, but that is still not stopping me from drinking it. So here we are, making bad choices, but making a good-ass podcast. And yeah, that's where we're at quarantine-wise. But you didn't come here to listen to me rant and ramble about my life and the poor life choices I make in it. But instead, you came here for jokes and informative content of the Shakespeare kind. And that's what I'm going to give you. That's my job. As an entertainer, I provide whether it's in the morn or the eve, in your bed or in the bathroom, it don't matter as long as you hear this voice in your ear holes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna entertain you, so you're welcome. Now, my first bit of entertainment for this, uh, for this podcast, is this. I'm gonna provide you a nice little hypothetical situation. Let's say you're, um, I don't know, a high school student in the middle of an, I don't know, quarantine, with, I don't know, um online classes and you have no motivation to do literally anything but that doesn't stop your teachers from giving you big ass tests that will impact your grade and your English teacher to be uh, specific has tasked you with reading a particular Shakespeare play and the whole class has to do it and it's going to be tested through a Socratic seminar no multiple choice no essays no 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 you have to talk to everybody and ask questions like you've read the play, but you haven't. And your test is in, I don't know, an hour. And you find this podcast and you think it's your holy grail. It is a Shakespeare podcast that summarizes Shakespeare plays. Fuck yeah, you can multitask now. However, though I may be summarizing plays, that's not the fucking point of this podcast, bud. So I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but you're not going to pass that test if you were late on the words coming out of my mouth. No sorry. Yeah, this is absolutely a podcast where I'm going to summarize Shakespeare plays until I finish the entire fucking canon. But it is also a comedy podcast. So I'm going to make fun of the fucking play every step of the way. And luckily for you, this episode, the first one, is on Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah. One of the most well-known and tested on Shakespeare plays out there. So I won't be going into great detail on this play because I'm also trying to cram in a nice little discussion part dos at the end. And with that being said, short and basic summaries are also not the point of this podcast. But this is the first episode. So I decided to test my concept of a two-episode weekly podcast series by cramming it into one episode and getting you your feedback. So I might be talking really, really fast, but luckily I went to an acting school uh, that taught me how to articulate properly. But unlucky for you, I'm drinking red wine and red wine makes me, makes my Southern come out. So uh, good luck. With that being said, let's move on to the first item 
of Business, which is the inspiration of the name of the podcast. Why Posthumous Podcast? What the fuck does posthumous mean? Well, according to the Webster Dictionary, posthumous actually means occurring after death. But according to Shakespeare, posthumous is the first part of a character's name in one of his comedies. It was in a comedy. You get it. You, you get it. It's an alliteration. You get it. But this play that uh, I'm talking about, um, the character's name is Posthumus Leonidas. Um, he is the male love interest of my favorite play. If you can guess what that is, we'll be best friends forever. Um, yeah, now that we've got that out of the way, how about we get right into it? This is the summary of Romeo and Juliet. We open with a nice little prologue from our chorus, warning the audience of what they're about to witness. The star-crossed lovers, a tragic end. The, the story takes place in the city of Verona. The conflict begins with the hatred between the Capulet family and the Montague family. No one knows where this started, but the hate is so deeply rooted that it has trickled down to the younger generations of this family. Now, next scene, enter the boys from each of the family into the ring, also known as the Streets of Verona, Mortal Kombat style. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, this is the do you bite your thumb at us, sir, scene, which basically goes down like this. Did you just flip us off? Yeah, bro. I just uh, raised my middle finger. It's no big deal. I didn't flip you off. Oh, I think you flipped us off. What are you going to do about it? Oh, we're going to fight. Bet. And then they start to draw their swords. However, this fight is interrupted by the regal and the renowned Prince of Verona in all his weirdo glory to warn the boys that if they were to actually fight and one of them were to die, the killer would be banished and the it's not, it doesn't end well for either family. So the boys agree that they would stop that. They were like, bet, okay, we take your warning. Gives the prince deference. They just like pick up their skirts and run. Um, cut to daddy Capulet sitting down, little baby Capulet, um, to have a nice little discussion. Daddy Capulet is like, okay, we're going to talk about love and marriage and how you're getting married to the man I chose for you, whether or not you like him or not. And baby Capulet is like, okay, cool. So daddy Capulet explains how normal and how rich and how powerful her suit, her new suitor, Count Paris is, and how he is such a generous, generous man and that he is going to throw a party for them so that they can at, like at least know what each other look like before they um, hit up the altar. And it's also, the it has a second purpose to impress Count Paris so that he actually has an incentive to marry little Juliet Capulet. Now, cut to courtyard. Three Montague boys doing boy things, I guess. I don't know, it's the equivalent to like throwing rocks at empty cans. I don't know. They're just boys being boys but not in the bad way yet. So we have Romeo, Romeo's cousin Benvolio, and their friend Mercutio. The nice teen drama triad. Here's my proof. You have the original ringleader, which is Mercutio. Mercutio is the cousin to 
the Prince of Verona. So he's got status. He's got power. He's got money. And he fucking knows it. He is the original Jack who pulls so much pussy that he ain't got it. That he ain't know what to do with it all. Right? That one motherfucker who pulled, who pumped full of testosterone and privilege. Who calls all the shots just to test the reach of his power. Yeah. And then you have the tag along. This is the poor bastard. The poor bastard who is usually like a like com- so comedically taller than all of his friends and comedically smaller than all of his friends who has no confidence in himself no willpower to say no to literally anything so he somehow gets sucked into all of the worst kinds of situation and is just on just always on the verge of a panic attack yeah that's been volio and lastly, we have the biggest of them all. We have the whiny-ass, borderline, suicidal-looking-ass protagonist who is somehow leading the narrative, but is also following shortly behind the ringleader crying. That is Romeo, to a T. Like, you ever watch literally any anime ever created and, the, and there's that one horny little boy who will fall in love with anything with taste? Yeah, I'm like so positive they were inspired by Romeo because that is exactly what's happening in this scene. Romeo is crying about his love, Rosalind, not returning any of his advances. And like this is the predecessor to the infamous dick pic, no response, I will kill myself if you don't respond move of any horny, insecure ass motherfucker out there. Like Romeo has sent her bribes, has sent her love letters, has sent her threats, has stalked her. But somehow Rosalind doesn't like it. Weird, right? And this has uh, almost drawn Romeo to suicide. Um, So Benvolio and Mercutio are both literally talking Romeo off a cliff. And Romeo, out of nowhere, like Tom Nook in Animal Crossing, when he gets an idea, just like, bring, realizes that there's a Capulet party and at that Capulet party will be a Rosalind. And Mercutio is just like, like screams in white boys, just like way ahead of you, buddy, and is booking it to that party while Benvolio is panicking, trying to talk some sense into the boys, but they're, they're already gone. So he's got to run off and save them. But how are they going to get into this party? Well, if you let me talk other side of this conversation that does not exist, I will tell you cash so we have to ask ourselves what kind of party is the capulet family going to throw in or like with the purposes in mind to uh, one impress count paris and to introduce count paris and juliet as potential lovers right what kind of party would you would you want well what they came up with was a masquerade a party which its entire purpose is to hide your face brilliant right yeah, well, this doesn't work out in the way that they want it to because um, the circumstances provide the boys with a brilliant idea for disguises, which is to change their names and wear a mask. And uh, it, it works. <laughs> They're in and they see everybody dancing and mingling, drinking and partying to their hearts content so mercutio makes a beeline towards the wine and women romeo books it in the other direction to try and find rosalind and benvolio is comedically stuck in the middle uh bouncing back and forth trying to figure out who exactly to 
go run after. Um, he comes to this, the decision to panically chase after them both. Um, you'll find out uh, later how well that works out for him. And um, on the flip side, uh, Juliet is doing a similar tactic that Benvolio is doing, but instead of chasing after someone, she's running away from everyone. Juliet is sick of this party and is trying to avoid literally everybody in this room. Um, but in an attempt to escape, she quite literally bumps into the love of her life, the mysteriously handsome Romeo boy. Um, and this causes a practically a three hour long sonnet fest uh, that ends in the lovers revealing their faces and kind of like doing like a seductive and romantic high five. <laughs> and then, then and then they end up having their first kiss so it's like not much of a cock block there but that uh love doesn't really that like love exchange doesn't really last long because Juliet's bitch ass cousin Tybalt finds the Montague boys and immediately kicks them the fuck out but that that doesn't just stop our good friend our good friend Romeo oh no 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 that really just like spurs him on and he is now in full stalker mode leaves behind all of his friends and breaks back into the Capulet estate to <laughs> gaze upon his love in a bush like a weirdo um, and that's right. That's right, you guys. We've made it. We've made it to the infamous balcony scene. Then we see lovely Juliet slumped over her balcony, whining and moaning about Romeo's name and how stupid it is and how much it doesn't matter. And like, nobody knows why their families hate each other. They just do. And if Romeo was to have like literally any other name, they would be married. No problem. But no, she had to fall in love with the Montague and now her life sucks. But pop goes the weasel from behind the bushes because Romeo is then inspired to go into this long monologue and begin his attempt to woo Juliet. Except he doesn't have to try that hard. He, she already loves him. And Juliet stops him in his tracks, bitches him out about how he should not be there, rightfully so. Because if Romeo were to be found in the courtyard, he would be killed on sight. But that doesn't stop him. Oh, no, no, no. This is a persistent motherfucker. No, because he then begins to talk about how much he loves her. Juliet reciprocates. This, this like takes him aback a little bit, but like Juliet is not as like fluffy as Romeo. Juliet's like, yeah, I love you too. You wanna get married? Like tomorrow? Okay, cool, I'll see you in the morning. And Romeo's like, oh, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. And they do, they get married the next morning. <laughs> Props and kudos to the friar and the nurse. Yay! Story can end now, right? They're married. They did it. Yay! Love prevails. Awesome. Um, and they go and celebrate this nice marriage by fucking. Oh yeah. And that's it. That's that's how they celebrate. Is they fucked in Juliet's bedroom like every high schooler, <laughs> every high schooler ever. And the next morning they exchange more lovely words. Until Juliet starts to hear the pitter-patter of footsteps coming up to her bedroom. And that really inspires Juliet to start chunking Romeo's clothes at him and kicking him out of her fucking room through the window. But no, no, no. Romeo isn't going to leave until he tells Juliet how much he loves her. 
And Juliet is just trying her best to save both of their lives. And finally, in the nick of time, Romeo jumps out the window and the door opens. And who is there in the doorway but the nurse? Ooh, sigh of relief, right? Nope. The nurse goes to uh, kind of like tell Juliet that maybe she's made a mistake by marrying Romeo and she should absolutely go after Count Paris. Juliet feels betrayed. But that's when Juliet's parents, Daddy Capulet and Mommy Capulet, come walking through the door to give her the fantastic news that she is supposed to get married to Count Paris the next morning. And this makes her livid. And the scene ends in her getting slapped by her father and then they all storm out and Juliet is panicking. Um, cut to Tybalt being a frustrated ass bitch with his Joffrey looking ass. He challenges our humble newlywed Romeo uh, to a duel, but Romeo is a man now. Let me just break it down how this scene goes for him. <coughs> Romeo says no to this duel. Mercutio says yes. Mercutio and Tybalt fight. Romeo tries to jump in to stop the fight. Tybalt sneaks a kill. Mercutio dead. Romeo mad. Romeo kill Tybalt. Romeo gets banished. Woo, that was a lot, right? Except the night prior amidst all that lovey-dovey, what I can only assume to be sonnet-like pillow talk, the couple had agreed to meet up the next day to discuss plans of escape so that they could live happily ever after. But due to this whole <laughs> banishing thing, Romeo never showed up. Weird, right? And that's when Juliet begins to panic. And that's when she finds out that Romeo got in a fight and got banished. And now on top of possibly getting married to Count Paris. Now she is panicking and she runs to the footsteps of Friar for help. And once again, <laughs> Friar Lawrence has to talk a teenager off a bridge because she's starting to threaten all sorts of drastic shit. And after Friar finally calmed Juliet down, he, uh, he begins to tell her of a plan that seems to be foolproof, right? And the plan goes like this. The friar has acquired this elixir um, that will make the person who drinks it appear to be dead for like 48 hours or something. Stopping all the vital signs, there's no breath, no heartbeat, you are in a death-like slumber, and you wake up once the effects of the drug wear off. So she fa so basically what she's going to do is fake a suicide. They're going to bury her in the crypt. She's going to wake up. The friar and Romeo will find her and they will escape and live happy ever after out of Romeo and out of their families forever. Juliet's like, bet, give me the drug. And she runs to her quarters to commence her side of the plan. And that's when the friar immediately writes Romeo a message informing him of the plan and his role in it. However... The message never gets to Romeo because Friar Lawrence is stopped at the gates of Verona by health officials who suspect him to have the plague. That's right. Verona is also under quarantine. Sound familiar? Yeah. Pretty, pretty fucking weird. <laughs> um, nevertheless, Juliet... Um, um, undergoes her side of the plan, takes the drug, has a like fakes fakes a quote-unquote suicide um she appears to be dead and and is found by her wedding party the next morning 
The Capulets hold an impromptu funeral of their late daughter, and she is laid to rest in their family's crypt with all of the withering bones of her ancestors. Yeah. Romeo's servant hears the tragic tale of Juliet, Romeo's wife, and tells Romeo that his wife, Juliet, is dead. In a desperate heat of mourning of his wife, Juliet, Romeo buys a poison and visits his uh, his wife's grave one last time and then kills himself there. Not but five fucking seconds later, Juliet wakes up to find her husband legit dead at her feet. She then makes one last complaint that he was uh, too selfish to save her any poison um, so that she could also kill herself. So she had to get a little creative and reach into his belt, pulls out his dagger and thrusts it through her chest. The uh, the Capulets are then told by some guards that the crypt door was pried open. The family rushed over to find the two lovers dead on the crypt floor. And that's when they are told the truth of the two's relationship with each other. And that forces the family to set aside their hate in the name of their children, and in that hold a joint funeral, so they will be together in the afterlife as they were in death. The fucking end. Woo! We did it. That was it. And that concludes the most excellent and most lamentable tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah! That was the summary, like, guys, as basic as it can possibly be. You can literally find a summary so similar to this on any website ever. Like, for example, I found this, What I found a summary from uh, shakespeare.org.uk that I used for guidance for what you just heard. Now, this will be the last time this uh, this happens. Not every, uh, like, there will be no other play that I will do this to. Every episode follow, following will basically be a summary of every episode in the play. Hence why it will have to be its own individual episode. With that being said, let's move on into part two where I talk about my thoughts on the play. Um, I asked myself a couple questions um, to help guide the discussion because I have ADHD and I will just make circles on the same fucking discussion um, unless I force myself to concentrate on it. So question number uno um, is whether or not I like it. And the answer is no. I personally do not like Romeo and Juliet. And here's why. I think it's overdone for one. And for two, I think it's hailed incorrectly as the pinnacle for romance stories. You know, like love at first sight till death do us part. Like that is the kind of surface level bullshit that so many people cling on to. But that's not the point of the story. It's a tragedy. Like I called it before. Um, called it the most excellent and lamentable tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. And here's the quote proving that that is the full fucking title of the play. The superior Q2 called the play the most excellent and most lamentable tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. End quote. That is according to Wikipedia. Q2 is in reference to the uh, quartos. Um, Here's explaining what a quarto is. Uh, Quote, before the publication of the first folio in in 1623, 19 of the 37 plays in Shakespeare's canon had appeared to be in quarto format, as according to ShakespeareOnline.com. So the second quarto, or Q2, is actually the basis for the first folio to to be made. 
And in this early format of his canon, Romeo and Juliet was hailed as a lamentable tragedy. It is not a fucking romance. And I think focusing on Romeo and Juliet's love for one another undermines the message of the story, which is without their family's hatred towards one another, the lovers would have lived. The lovers were so afraid to confront their families about their love that they lived in secret. And when the walls came crashing down, the only way for them to live and love and happiness was through death. Juliet had to die in order to escape a loveless household. It, during this time period, if you were born into a prestigious, aristocratic, like wealthy family, like you were not there, you, you were born for a purpose, which was to carry on the lineage. People had children in hopes that they would raise a boy so that they would carry on the name. And if they had a girl, their purpose was to carry on the bloodline and the wealth to have children so that at least the Capulet blood would continue. And that's what happened. That is the reality of Juliet's household is that she wouldn't have been raised by mother and father. She would have been raised by the nurse and the rest of the and the rest of the family servants. The only time that she would interact with her biological parents was at meals, at events, um, d like discussions, and she would have to treat them like royalty. And with that, she never learned what love was because she never had it from her fucking parents. So when she found that, when she found love in Romeo, she she held on to that so tightly because that is all she's ever wanted and she never wanted to let that go. So when she was told that she was arranged to marry, uh, marry Count Paris the following morning, she would do anything to make sure that that didn't happen because she didn't love Count Paris. And if she were to, and like logistically speaking, if she were to actually marry Count Paris, she would be mar legally married to two people. That is infidelity. And she would be, and that is punishable by death. She would have been killed for cheating on Romeo with Count Paris and the other way around. Um, yeah. And on the flip side, if she chose Count Paris in order to stay alive, she, um, like there, there was no escape because she would have to divorce one of them and a woman couldn't divorce in that time. And that also was punishable by death. The only person that could like legally divorce was a man and, she was not a man. <laughs> she was a woman. So there she, like, the, of course, the friar's plan was her only escape. She had to run away or else she would die. And all she, like, all she wanted was a choice. All she wanted was to choose who she loved no, no matter, no matter who they were. And she died for that. And still, everyone treats this like a fucking love story when it's not. It's not a love story. It's a tragic story about love. And there's a difference. Uh, with that being said, question number two, um, do I think that it's done slash treated correctly? And like, despite all of the like shitting on I just did, um, it really is hard to hard to say. Because it's, it's like it's all circumstantial, you know, like, um, I think as times continue to change and the feminist mu uh, movement uh, becomes more and more widespread and understood, I really think people are starting to see Juliet as less of an like a stereotypical ingenue type character. And I 
and do not mean that in any disrespect. There is a lot of power and a lot of respect um, in ingenue type characters, i.e. Disney princesses, any sort of like innocent, young, youthful type female character, like female character in shows. But like stereotype, and when I say stereotypical, I mean like, I, I, like it's really hard to say without offending people, but like basically what I mean is people are starting to like see Juliet less as a submissive like like plot device for the for the for Romeo's um storyline and more as a, a like sensible passionate equal counterpart to Romeo and that is very important and very re like revolutionary but even still we face the issue of first impressions. Uh, for example, when I um, when I uh, went to acting school, I would go through all my classical acting classes with the mindset that Juliet was this light, airy, submissive girl who kills herself over a man, and that that left a bad taste in my mouth. So much so that I would go throughout my tra uh, training thing that I will I will never be a Juliet because. I don't come across as submissive or easily controllable. And yeah, that is absolutely true. But on the flip side, Juliet isn't like that, or at least not by her own choosing. And like when my classical acting class, uh, when we were all cast in different scenes in Romeo and Juliet, I was cast as the nurse. And that only made my claim more true in my head, if that makes any sense. And then I would watch my teacher talk to all the Juliets, um, directing them to be strong, witty, and extremely passionate and sexual characters. And it made me like sit back and think like, if this is the kind of Juliet that you wanted, why am I not Juliet? And that's when like a light bulb went off in my head. And, um, and that's when I realized that it had nothing to do with powerful energy uh, because Juliet is powerful but had everything to do with age. She is a young teenager and I have looked like a grown ass woman since puberty. Yeah. So where did all this prejudice begin? And I really think it uh, began in my high school English classes. My school's curriculum used Romeo and Juliet to teach us literary devices, plot and themes. You know, they would show us like productions of Romeo and Juliet for like the seventies where gender roles in that time i.e. dominant and submissive roles were beginning to be articulated and labeled, but were still heavily implemented. And it was evident in casting and directing of these types of productions because Juliet in these productions were extremely, like it was so inspired by what women were supposed to be. Or like it, like it was so influenced by gender roles. It's not even funny. And showing and though those gender roles are starting to be broken and starting to in the feminist movement is starting to, is continuing to promote equality amongst genders. Um, we're still being we're still being shown these kinds of productions because that's what teachers think that like that's what it that's like at least assuming teachers look at productions of Romeo and Juliet and think the older it is the better it is and that's not and that's not necessarily, necessarily education because what this did was imprint an idea 
of what Juliet was supposed to be. And I knew that I was not that and I will never be that. But when I read Tina Packer's book, Women of Will, she writes that Juliet is far more practical, quote. And then she goes on to say that, quote, the woman enjoys equal excuse me sorry the woman enjoys absolute equality with the man Shakespeare wrote about Juliet with as much insight and nuance and detail as that with which he wrote about Romeo end quote quote men and women in their very essence have natural parity if one has dominance over the other it means spiritual life is suffocated for both end quote schools miss this all the time You know, like if I had this kind of insight in high school, if I viewed Juliet through these through these lenses, I think I it would have been easier for me to fall in love with this story rather than just respecting its influence on the arts. Um, Yeah, a a lot of schools focus um, when it comes to Shakespeare on his use of verse and prose, the literary devices that he perfected and the plot devices rather than diving into what they mean for the story and how it affects the characters and their lives throughout the story like the only real plot devices in his plays are the characters and in Romeo and Juliet to be on brand the protagonists are equal and that is just too revolutionary to just gloss over and I think Shakespeare is taught in the wrong in the wrong curriculum to begin with like Shakespeare Shakespeare's plays were not intended to be read but they were intended to be fucking performed and seen and heard Shakespeare wrote his plays with like it's not grammatically correct it has iambic pentameter for uh, for purpose for purpose um all the commas the the hyphens the um the periods, exclamation marks, question marks, like all of these uh, gram- uh, like grammatical tools are have a purpose and it is meant to give clues to the actors on how Shakespeare wants these char- like these lines to be read and how the and how he wants these lines to be performed and it gives hints on what kind of what you should be feeling and how you should be making the audience feel it is meant to spark an emotion and even if like even if you don't understand what the words fully mean if you follow the roadmap that Shakespeare has given you you will start to feel something because that is just how deep Shakespeare understood humanity and that in schools and like schools miss that completely yeah end of rant <laughs> okay we're gonna move on um next question is do I th- uh, like do I think that it's important in the arts and the answer is of course it is it's fucking Shakespeare and on top of that it's a fantastic tragedy Romeo and Juliet is the perfect implementation of Dramatic irony. Dramatic irony, according to Britannica, uh, Britannica.org, is it is a literary device by which the audiences and the reader's understanding of events or individuals in a work surpasses that of its characters. In other words, the audience knows something the characters do not. And what that does is it uh, creates an immense amount of empathy between... Oh. Sorry about that. (laughs) Anyways, what that does is it creates an 
empathic connection between audience and characters. So much so that you fall in love with them, that you feel personally attached to these characters. On top of that, it creates a separation between audience and uh, audience and character. So much so that in Romeo and Juliet in particular, you feel this inability to save them, which creates this perfect cocktail of heartbreak. And what I mean by this, for example, like, you know the Friar's plan. You know the message never gets to Romeo. You know you can't tell Romeo. So when Romeo is told that Juliet is dead, all you want to do is tell him she's not. You know when Romeo enters that crypt that he's going to kill himself. But all you want to do is just tell him to wait a little bit longer. So when he dies and Juliet immediately wakes up, all you feel is regret, hopelessness, guilt, and loss as you watch Juliet follow suit. Like you're responsible for that because you couldn't do anything about it. And reality is there was nothing you could have done, but by God, did you want to? And it's fucking brilliant. On top of that, even if I don't agree with it, it still has become a pinnacle of love for generations to come. That, and it's just proof of how monumental that story is. And on top of that, let's talk, you know what? Let's talk about love. Let's do it. Um, and I'm, and I'm going to use um, some quotes from Tina Packer's Women of Will. It is a fantastic book where she maps Shakespeare's remarkable view of women through his female characters. Um, I highly recommend it. She does, she has amazing points. She has done her freaking research. And in this book, she argues that in Romeo and Juliet, it ultimately sparks the notion that love knows no bounds. And it's true, it doesn't. She writes in her book, uh, quote, but it is in Romeo and Juliet that Shakespeare wrote about a sexual passion which was so consuming and so enlightening that it created an energy between the two lovers, which in turn led them to understand the very source of spirituality itself. She argues that the immense amount of passion that is written into the very core of the story is spurred from Shakespeare's deep love that he found himself by loving someone else. There is no one in his time or any time after that that has been able to understand the very depth of humanity, its emotions and its behaviors like Shakespeare has. And that is, you you, ha you have to respect that at, it, at least especially with what I'm about to say next, because it like almost brings me to tears because without Romeo and Juliet, without the demonstration, the articulation that love knows no bounds, um, people wouldn't understand how deep and how true love is, that love is blind, that it knows no race, it doesn't know gender, it doesn't know it doesn't know sexuality. Uh, it doesn't, oh, excuse me. It doesn't know age. It doesn't know, it doesn't know anything. All it knows is love. And without that deep understanding, marriage rights would not be where it is today. And I truly believe that. And now we move on. Uh, before I start crying, we move on to the next question, which is, is there anything that can change your opinion on this play? And yes, there is. Um, I've never seen Romeo and Juliet live. And that is partially my fault because of my own prejudices against it. So if I were to watch a good production of Romeo and Juliet, if I were able to 
go on this journey a journey and build that empathic connection with those characters know that they're going to die at the end and still cry when they die i think i'll be able to learn to love it and that brings us to the last question of this discussion portion which is do i see myself getting cast in this play um if you couldn't tell i'm an actor (laughs) i am i um label myself as a classical actor who specializes in stage combat with that being said um i think eventually i could be cast in this play but it all depends on what i'm auditioning for in terms of gender so what i mean by that is if i were going for if i was leaning more towards like male characters yeah, I could be cast right now. Um, I have the fight skills. I have the hair. I have short hair. Um, and I have the Shakespeare know-how to play the boys in this play. Um, if I had to pick two dream roles out of those boys, it would be Tybalt or Mercutio, despite all the shit I gave them in the <laughs> in part one. Um, and the reason being because they have such um, such important fight scenes um, I really think I can, uh, that, um, the play can utilize my fight skills. Um, and also because they're extremely pro- problematic children that I genuinely believe would be fun to play and they have, uh, death scenes. Um, yeah. So that's for being cast today. Um, as far as female characters go, I will never, ever be Juliet. And I recognize that, but my reasoning for that has changed has nothing to do with her energy and has everything to do with age. Like I said before, I've looked like a grown-ass woman since puberty. And that is absolutely true. And still to this day, I am, uh, I'm 21 years old, um, but I look like four years older than my age. There is no, no way I can play a 13 year old girl. And realistically, that's how old Juliet would have been is like 13 years old. Can't do that. Won't do that. Um, have accepted that. Um, as far as the nurse or Lady Julia goes, I'm too young to play those characters. So that puts me in a really weird gray area where right now the only choice I have to be in Romeo and Juliet is to play the boys because I'm too young and too old to be cast in any of the female roles. But I think as I get older and I begin to age into the types required to play the nurse and Lady Capulet, I think I could. I think I could be cast as those roles. And, uh, and scene. So yeah, with that being said, that brings us to the end of the first episode. We did it, you guys. I'm so proud of you. How you doing? Pat yourself on the back. You did it. I did it. You know what? I'm going to do it. I did it. Um, but like, seriously, I really hope you guys found this both informative and entertaining. I had a lot of fun doing this. Um, you can reach out to me on either my Instagram, which is at Bailey Vanscapen or my website, which is baileyvanscapen.com with any questions, thoughts, opinions, and even suggestions for next week's play. Weird. I am accepting all of it. I'm hoping to upload new episodes um, every week, different times of the week, because um, such as life um, shit changes. So if you've got a play that you want to hear me nerd out about, let me know. I'll do it. No questions asked. Um, otherwise, I'm just going to start at the top of the canon and go down from there. Um, yeah, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you guys next week. My name is Bailey Van Scapen, and though I may not be little, 
I'm still fierce. That's another, that's another Shakespeare reference. Okay, bye!